When I was little, my brothers and I would play a game called Mercy. It involved one person twisting the forearm of the other until the person whose arm was getting twisted couldn't bear it any longer and would say, mercy. There are lots of variations on this game. Maybe you've played one of them on the playgrounds as a child, or maybe you just understand that kids do weird things when they're bored. I got a thumbs up from Axel, it's true. Anyway, I refused to give in and I'd walk away with arms with these big red welts where my brothers would twist and turn and twist and turn again. This game taught me that to ask for mercy was a sign of defeat, that mercy was equivalent to weakness. In my mind, saying mercy was the same as losing, and offering mercy came from a clear position of superiority and power. Now, you might think that's a lot to learn from a game played between children, but I can't say that my conclusions were rebuked or debunked by any of the adults in my life. There was no one that I trusted or admired who ever stopped to correct my understanding. Maybe they thought they didn't have to, but maybe there are some larger issues in our culture that make this kind of thinking not just possible, but probable. Last month, I stood up here and I said that the mystery of God is greater than all of our attempts to define it or quantify it. I said that despite all of the math about God, adding up characteristics of virtue and subtracting evil, it was still less important than our intimate experience of God in our lives. I stand by all of that. I wouldn't take back a single word because I believe it's all still true. I'm fundamentally not a math person, as we've talked about. Whether that math is existential questions or calculus homework, kids, please don't ask me for help. And so when I titled this sermon, Discipleship Equals Mercy, even I am tempted to say that we've had enough equations for now. But bear with me just a little bit, um, because I'm not trying to explain God here. I'm trying to explain our human response to God, which Luke chapter 10 has a few words to say about. In particular, a few words about the transformation that God does in our lives and what it truly means to be a disciple. Now, this is a familiar story to many of you, and for good reason. The parable of the merciful Samaritan is the kind of classic Jesus that we all love to point to, the Jesus who so nicely lines up with canon Jesus in our head. I like to think a lot of people also like it because it ends with a relatively happy ending. The man is on the road to recovery thanks to the generosity of another traveler. But all of this fairy tale wrapping hides a deeply challenging message that I hope we can hear with fresh ears and open hearts this morning. In verse 25, Luke tells us that a lawyer came to talk to Jesus with the express purpose of testing him. 
Now, I didn't even go to law school, but I already know that this is not good news. And anyone who watches Law and Order will tell you that a lawyer never asks a question that they don't already know the answer to. A lawyer never sets themselves up to be lied to or tricked or caught off guard. A lawyer never asks a question looking for new information. And this lawyer is no exception. We're going to see a pattern here of question and answer like a trial, a dialogue between the lawyer and Jesus that is carefully constructed for one purpose. Now, the lawyer will ask two questions, which Jesus will answer, and Jesus will ask two questions of his own. The final word on this matter is given to Jesus, a closing statement of sorts that gives an invitation that not only sets the lawyer completely on edge, but will flip the script on his intention to trap him in a theological conundrum. The lawyer first asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, what is written in the law? The lawyer correctly recites, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer asks for this simple formula for salvation, and Jesus asks for the first two commandments, the ones that stand above the rest. If you're following along with our math, the equation goes love God plus love neighbor as yourself equals eternal life. But because that is a little too simple for our lawyer, he continues, and who is my neighbor? Which to me seems like the real question that he had been wanting to ask this whole time. He's saying, tell me who to love. Tell me who to care about. Tell me exactly the Jew I must call my neighbor so that I can be saved. In response to this question, Jesus tells him this familiar story. A man is critically injured by robbers and left to die on the side of the road. Not one, but two religious leaders passed him by, even crossing to the other side in order to avoid him. Now, scholars can tell you that there are lots of reasons why they might have done this. The road was dangerous, the men risked their own lives in stopping to help. Touching a wounded man would make them unclean and therefore unable to do their jobs, and so on. But make no mistake, these excuses, because that is what they are, do not matter to the dying man. He does not know their possibly good intentions or their holy lifestyles, or their high-ranking religious leadership, he only knows that they do not stop to help. The man who does stop, the man who does risk his life, the only one who does not pass on the opposite side of the road is a Samaritan. Samaritans were an ethnic and religious minority that were despised and even persecuted by the Jews. 
But this particular Samaritan does not let the centuries of interreligious and intercultural conflict stand in the way of a fellow human being's desperate need. He saves the man's life, bringing him to an inn where he can rest and recover, and he pays for his complete care. When Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these three men was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers, the lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. The merciful Samaritan is the true neighbor in this story, the model for what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. Mercy is the characteristic that separates neighbors from strangers. The message of this parable ends with Jesus' simple conclusion, go and do likewise. Go and be merciful. Go and be the kind of neighbor that risks their life and their reputation for the sake of someone else, even if that someone else might be someone that your people call your enemy. Go and be the kind of person who does not cross to the other side of the road, but a neighbor who draws near to the wounded and the vulnerable. Go and do likewise. In this parable, mercy is not an abstract theological concept or a thought exercise, but a tangible action that neighbors must participate in if they wish to love God and love others. It is not optional, nor is it done only when convenient, when there are no egos or security on the line. Mercy sets aside preference and boundaries of propriety. Mercy does not ask if someone is worthy of it. Mercy only asks, am I capable of giving it? Jesus says the math is very simple here, my friends, and mercy is an indispensable part of the equation. Without mercy, there are no neighbors. Without mercy, there is no eternal life. Discipleship is a bit of a buzzword right now in some Christian circles. We have discipleship programs, discipleship schools, and some churches have discipleship pastors. It could be a rebranding of previous generations' passion for Christian education, or what we've called spiritual formation. But I really like this term, discipleship, because it forces us to ask some hard questions about how Christians live their everyday lives. When I was growing up in my home church, my Christian education asked me, what do I know about God? But discipleship asks me, how am I following God? I loved my spiritual formation classes in seminary, but they asked, how am I growing in understanding God? And I think this parable calls us to ask, how am I growing in imitating God? The truth is that you are being discipled at every moment of every day. 
You are discipled by the news networks that you watch, the books that you read, the social media that you consume, and the leaders that you vote for. You are discipled by the products and companies you support, the new ideas that you are willing to hear, and the pathways to success that you idolize. We are all being shaped and molded and formed by all of it, whether we are aware of it or not. But if you want to be discipled by Jesus, if you want to be shaped and molded and formed more and more into Christ's image, Luke chapter 10 tells us that the most important way is to love God and love others and to show mercy. Mercy is discipleship, and discipleship is mercy. They are one and the same. Mercy is the mark of a true neighbor, and mercy is the mark of a true disciple. If I'm being honest with you, and I hope that I am, I'm not a very merciful person. I hold grudges. I harbor resentment against people who've hurt me. I walk past dozens of homeless people every day here on Capitol Hill. And most of the time, I do nothing to help. I see people asking for money or for food. And even if I don't cross to the other side of the street, I am not generous or self-sacrificing. You could say that I've been discipled by forces in our culture that tell me that mercy is not a virtue. So I'm preaching to myself just a little bit here. Maybe you can think of times when you had an opportunity to show someone mercy and you didn't take it. Or a time when mercy was needed but you chose judgment or revenge instead. Perhaps you've also absorbed some of our culture's attitudes about mercy, that it's a sign of weakness, or that simple charity, support given to those we deem worthy, is enough. Mercy in this day and age might be radical, but the parable of the merciful Samaritan shows that mercy has always been radical. It always exposes our excuses. It always sacrifices our own egos and preferences. The lawyer came to test Jesus, but Jesus offers him a test in return. In essence, if you cannot offer mercy like the Samaritan did, then you are not a neighbor in God's kingdom. In our own time, I've come to believe this week that this same test still applies. If you have ever wondered what you would have done when slavery was legal, or if you've ever questioned what side you would have taken in World War II Germany, or if you've ever thought about what your response would have been to the civil rights movement, there's a simple math equation for you too. Because whatever you would have done is what you are doing right now.
Right now in our country, there are raids being conducted by ICE. Innocent, asylum-seeking children are packed into cages after being separated from their parents. Black and brown people are killed by police over and over again. All of these are our modern bodies left by the side of the road. These immigrants fleeing violence that the United States created. These children who do not even have toothbrushes or soap. These weeping families at grave sites. They do not want our good intentions or our excuses. We have had opportunities for radical mercy. And many of us, myself included, have passed them by. Our discipleship demands that we do not prioritize our own safety or our own reputations or our own cleanliness. Jesus demands that we do not ignore these needs of our global and local neighbors because a failure to show mercy is a failure at the core of our discipleship. A failure to protect the people who come to this country out of desperation and fear for their lives is a failure of discipleship. A failure to condemn and fix our child separation policies is a failure of discipleship. A failure to speak truth about systemic racism in this country is a failure of discipleship. These may seem like harsh words for a tender time. But I think as we consider our future as a church and how we are going to move forward together, I think these words should speak to us. I don't say these things lightly, and I say them because I need to be convicted of them too. Jesus' command to go and do likewise is the instruction that God has sent his people for the past 2,000 years. And we cannot ignore his invitation now. God does not ask us to go and do likewise because we are more ethical or superior in any way, but because we too have been the person in need of help the dying man on the side of the road. We, too, stand in constant need of God's mercy and care. So, my friends, I'm going to lead by example this week, and I promise that I will be more merciful in the weeks to come. I am going to forgive someone that I've been angry at, for a long time. You can ask me about it when I return from vacation. I want you to keep me accountable. I won't turn away or ignore our Capitol Hill neighbors who need our care. I won't be silent about our traumatized asylum seekers at the border. And I won't make excuses when other vulnerable human beings cry out for mercy. There is no other choice for me. My discipleship demands it. 
And so, as you too go about your week, discipled by so many different voices and forces, I hope that you will hear Jesus' voice most clearly. I hope that you will not make excuses or pass by on the opposite side of the road. I hope that you will see that mercy is our ultimate strength, a gift that we freely give to others because we know that our God has been merciful to us first. So, my friends, go and do likewise because your neighbor and your discipleship depend on it. Amen.